This, rather, is the fasting that I wish, releasing those bound unjustly, untying the thongs of the yoke, setting free the oppressed, breaking every yoke, sharing your bread with the hungry, sheltering the oppressed and the homeless, clothing the naked when you see them, and not turning your back on your own. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your wound shall quickly be healed. Your vindication shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. That was a Lenten message from Isaiah 58, and this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. have a great topic this week, Liberation Theology and Marxism, a chapter by Enrique Dussel, the great Latin American historian and scholar, and a great topic, also a great guest, Dean Detloff, our first guest on the show, faculty and doctoral candidate at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Canada, and co-host of the Magnificast, a weekly podcast on Christianity and leftist politics. I sat down with Dean a few weeks ago to dive into this conversation, and so let's just go for it, get right to it. This episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast, we have a guest and uh, Dean Detloff here with us for this chapter by Enrique Dussel on Liberation Theology and Marxism. So welcome, Dean. Thanks, David. It's great to be on the show. I've really enjoyed it so far, and I love what you're up to over here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a part of it today, and I've really been looking forward to this discussion. Maybe uh, starting with uh, first things first. Dussel is is speaking about a kind of historical tension between Christianity and Marxism. So what what do you think is kind of the nature of this tension, both from, well, you know, why is the Catholic Church and other Christian traditions suspicious of Marxism and offer these magisterial condemnations of Marxism? Uh, where is that coming from? And then vice versa, you know, maybe sometimes on the left, on the Marxist left, there's a a tricky relationship with the Catholic Church, to say the least, and other forms of Christianity. So, yeah, what what's the nature of this tension? Yeah, uh, what a great softball right off the bat here, David. <laughs> it's a, a very good question. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's important to begin with the story of Marx that begins prior to the history of things like the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China or all these decolonial movements, right? Because in the 1800s and the 19th century, when the Catholic Church is starting to develop its own ideas about labor and industrial society, etc., that's also the time that Marx is developing all kinds of powerful ideas about the same thing. And so the Church and, and Marx and Marxists are all sort of 
competing for the uh, the influence over the rising industrial class of, of workers, which was not even as prolific or, or large as it is today. So it's this very emergent kind of historical moment. You know, capitalism is, is sort of swinging into high gear in that moment. So you see the church and Marx both trying to contend with that. Uh, the sort of um, the competing differences, you might say, in the beginning, I think, are sort of twofold. So there's an ideological difference, of course. The the Catholic Church and Marxism differ in lots of ways, but especially on the simple topic of theism, right? Uh, early on, there are, are political differences, too. But um, the, the most simple is Karl Marx is an atheist, an Enlightenment atheist, like many others. You know, he's not unique in that respect. Um, and the church is not. So there's that kind of difference, ideologically speaking. Politically, though, you know, you might think of Rerum Novarum, the first encyclical where the church is trying to work out this idea of, of labor. And in that text, uh, Pope Leo rejects the idea of class struggle, most famously, which is the, the bedrock of Marxist theory about how capitalism works, instead proposing a, a Catholic idea of class harmony. So the attitudes of uh, the Pope and Vatican teaching have evolved since Rerum Novarum, and the history of Marxism has evolved since Karl Marx. Pope Leo perhaps might not recognize himself in encyclicals today, and uh, you know, hopefully he would, but perhaps he would say things a bit differently. And in the same respect, uh, Marx too might not recognize himself in certain Marxist movements today. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of originary, uh, uh, very big difference of opinion uh, and that uh, develops over time. On the Marxist side, too, I should say, the sort of opposition to Christianity or the Catholic Church comes mostly from a political standpoint. They see the church on the side of the people who are oppressing the working class. And so for them, faced with that opposition, the church often ends up being on the side of the enemy in that class struggle, right? By promoting a class harmony, the church either is refusing to take a side or it's kind of inadvertently siding with capital over labor. So there's that kind of political assumption that maybe this isn't a good alliance for us in, in some parts of the left, not all of them, but certainly mm. some leftists are left like that. Yeah. And as you're sharing those things, uh, three things come to mind for me. One was uh, Alberto Hurtado, who is mentioned in the text here and who is uh, I took as my vow name uh, when I took vows oh, wow. in the Society of Jesus here as a as a novice, precisely because of Alberto Hurtado's work with the working class and union development and also his his spirituality and many reasons there. But we, we note that Dussel is speaking here about there is the part of Alberto Hurtado, which is seeing the competitiveness between uh, the communists kind of stealing away Catholics. And then we need to get them back by having our own Catholic unions as, uh -huh. as opposed to maybe what I would consider to be more of a, a working together approach, you know, where we don't have to have two competing movements when really the goal is this the same regarding the working class. And then I was thinking of uh, right now in my in my class on philosophy and film here, we're looking at October by Eisenstein. And the curious thing that I note is is what you were speaking about with the skepticism towards religion, because you see in that film that one of the clear goals is to associate religion with the provisional, the corrupt pro, uh, provisional and incomplete government. And so you can see kind of this uh, uh, unholy alliance of religious power and, and capitalist power and the preserving of the past, uh, react, reacting against 
some things there. And so I forget what the other thing I was going to say was, but that's... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was a great point. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but um, okay. so then moving on to the next phase of this initial phase of, of kind of a block in the, the dialogue and possibility for dialogue early on. Then uh, Dussel is speaking about some Christians who enter into leftist politics, but then lose their faith in the process of doing that or move away from their faith in the process of doing that and come to see their Christianity maybe as a false consciousness or as a previous step in their development towards um towards being on the left. And so I know that you are someone who speaks to many people who do uh, have a reconciliation of these two parts of who they are, uh, being Christians and, and being leftists, and, and see an integration and complementarity there. So I'm wondering, why do some people, the, the folks with whom you speak on the Magnificast, and maybe yourself included, how do you see these two things coming together? And why do you think maybe in some cases people lose one or the other uh, along the way? Yeah, it's a, another great question. Um, you know, I think despite the confrontation in some respects between the official uh, teaching of the church and the sort of uh, official or semi-official teaching of certain Marxist uh, traditions, um, despite that confrontation, on the ground, Catholics and Marxists have nevertheless found lots and lots of ways to collaborate, um, even before things like Vatican II. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Ortado, you can mention lots and lots of other folks uh, historically who, who found themselves caught up in these alliances just because the struggle of life brings these people into the struggle for justice together. And I think that that speaks to my own experience, right? As a Roman Catholic out in the world trying to find out you know, why are people that I love and care about being oppressed or exploited? Uh, I found myself rubbing elbows with people who happen to be Marxists. And so over time, you you get to talking. And one thing that I often like to say is uh, I've had more conversations, for example, about Oscar Romero and his life and, and death with uh, Marxists and people in, you know, labor halls and things like that than I've ever had in my own local parish. So there's this kind of... Uh, synergy of, of effort, you know, to really raise up that, that voice of the voiceless. And I think that, you know, it's easier to find these kind of synergies now in some ways than it might have been before, let's say, the 1960s. There's a, a much bigger and much more public sort of uh, wealth of, of examples to draw from, both from Christians reaching out to the left and people on the left reaching out to Christianity. So in many respects, it's much easier now to reconcile those things than it would have been, you know, a century ago when these kinds of uh, debates were, were much more strongly put. I think more importantly, you know, I stay a Christian because I, I really do believe the story of God becoming a human being walking with us in solidarity, dying as a political dissident, rising from the dead, you know, and that story, again, just sort of pushes me into these spaces where other people, too, are, are showing up in solidarity with those folks and dying as political dissidents. So there's these biographical um, sort of convergences that I think a lot of us have in, in social justice circles, but there's also this yearning for a better world that doesn't feel so hard to reconcile when you see lots of people doing it uh, all the time. 
Yes, absolutely. I think of on the first episode of this podcast, I was speaking a little bit about the the kind of very natural and organic way in which I was introduced to liberation theology was precisely because there were people who were doing it in in Guatemala as I was working kind of alongside and studying the situation of uh, folks in Guatemala. Many of the people who were advocating for the liberation of the oppressed in Guatemala were people who were going to, to church on Sunday. And that was a fascinating dynamic for me that maybe I hadn't seen before, the integration of these two aspects. But I think, as you say, it, it's already happening in so many ways and has been happening for a long time. Uh, the other thing I think of in, in 1979 with the Sandinistas, I just picked up from the library the other day this wonderful text, which is the pastoral letter of the bishops. It talks about the Christian commitment to the revolutionary process and says pretty clearly that if uh, socialism is is understood properly and is not used as an oppressive, you know, maybe sometimes people will point to uh, examples of socialism being used in an authoritarian way. If it's not used in that way, they say basically, what's the problem? There's there's no big deal here. Uh, we should we should be throwing our lot in with this uh, socialist revolution and. In so many ways, it was already happening organically before that letter was even published. So I think, uh, like you mentioned, sometimes it's not so much that there's uh, the tension, but there's only a tension from a certain perspective. And, yeah, and I, you know, th- there are real uh, political tensions that have happened historically. And I, I never, I never want to whitewash those things or, or pretend mm-hmm. they don't matter, right? L- lots of examples of Marxists uh, abusing Christians and Christians abusing Marxists unfairly, right? So yes. uh, I don't mean to sort of play the, this off as though there you can smooth it over very easily, but I do think you know you're pointing to the uh, the bishops of Nicaragua finding their own way into the struggle is such a, an important kind of thing, right? That in spite of all of these challenges, nevertheless, uh, good good faith engagements on both sides have led to real progress, and it's important to hold on to that. Yeah, I like that a, a recognition of the tensions there and and the importance of that, and the fact that we we need to work through some things. I think in the introduction to the Magnificat, sometimes you have the the playing of someone who is speaking about the fact that there are tensions between materialism. And when you take up that perspective, what does that mean for the way that we interpret the Bible? And do we recognize those tensions there uh, and not blow through them or blow past them? But kind of, yeah, I mean, that in some ways is where where the creativity comes, which I think liberation theology is, is looking for that creative movement of the spirit. Sometimes it shows up in those places where uh, there's kind of a disruption uh, and, and we take that and run with it and do something different. Now, so I would just mention the Nicaragua, but I think for so many, uh, Salvador Allende in Chile is a key moment in the history of liberation theology, Christianity, and, uh, and socialism in Latin America, the organizations like Christians for Socialism, so many priests in Chile signing on to the program of Allende, the worker move, uh, youth worker movement, university branches of Catholic action in Allende. So maybe I think uh, so many people uh, may, may not be familiar with this this incredible moment that happened and this coalition that was built at that time. What uh, what happened in Chile that led to um, the rise of Salvador Allende and what was the role of Christians in that? I love 
the history of Chile, especially. It is a fascinating country, and still today, it is a country wrestling through, you know, right now on the ground, lots of people in Chile wrestling through the, the contradictions of that country, and many Christians and Marxists alike heavily invested in that struggle today. Uh, but Allende was a, a fascinating socialist character in Latin America. He had run a few times unsuccessfully for president of that country already and was nevertheless building this strong campaign, a beautiful campaign um, around the country uh, in the late 60s and running in a, a very contentious election. There were several factions. It, everything was very unstable up in the air. Lots of uh, ways the country could have gone forward. And to make a long story short, in that argument or that big uh, sort of soup of activity happening in Chile at the time, Allende emerged very fragilely as the victor in that presidential election in many ways unexpectedly. And in that moment, people needed to figure out how they were going to respond and react to that moment. So Christians especially had to sort out what will we do about Allende, about the election of a real radical socialist uh, democratically and peacefully to government. Um, this is the first time in Latin America that there's been a successful socialism that did not come through armed revolution. So it was a real significant transformative moment. There were, of course, as you might suspect, lots of Christians who did not like Allende were not excited yes. about that prospect. Um, but at the same time, uh, lots of Christians who were, or who were at least willing to find their own place in the kind of society that Allende was envisioning and, and to think of a Christian way to contribute. So one of the most fascinating organizations uh, that came about in that process was called, as you mentioned, Christians for Socialism. Um, it was a pretty large popular movement that included priests, lay people, and religious. Uh, one of the most famous documents was this thing called the Declaration of the Eighty, which was as, uh, a document signed by 80 priests basically declaring their support for Allende and also declaring that they had every intention of, of not supporting it blindly, but mm. learning from the process and, again, finding their own way to contribute to it, to push it in certain directions, etc. So Christians for Socialism was one of these emerging coalitions. Allende was very excited about it himself. He spoke at, at one of their conventions or sent a letter at least. Um, and there were bishops in Chile, too, who were supportive of, of CFS, though there were others who were not, of course. Also in that big ferment was a, a split within what was called the Christian Democratic Movement. The Christian Democrats were sort of sorting out, again, what to do in this turbulent moment with Allende. Uh, at the last moment, they offered support to Allende, which they came to uh, regret later on uh, for their own kind of reasons. And they swung back to the right. Uh, unfortunately, it's a sort of sad story. Um, but especially important in the Christian Democrats was their youth movement, as you mentioned. Uh, that movement slowly ended up splitting from the official Christian Democrat movement because they were so caught up in the fervor of imagining a real just society that they saw Allende uh, embodying. And so lots of Catholic youth in particular formed a base of Allende's support. So Chile is, I think, it stands out as an example in Latin America and liberation theology for two reasons. On the first, it's a, uh, a peaceful election, a democratic election of socialism to power, and that represents a different way forward than something like Cuba, let's say. Uh, and on the other hand, um, or secondly, it's this very productive few years, three years that Allende's in power, where Christians are, are building these incredible 
networks of support in their own country and around the world. Uh, and, and it came to an end in 1973 with the uh, a, a right-wing military coup, and that coup also kind of preserved that Allende moment as a, a real sign of, of hope and, and the fragility of these alliances. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that, filling in the picture of what happened in Chile. Complex process, but in so so many ways for me, a hopeful process, you know, in people coalition building and coming together from many different perspectives. And I think we, we see a little foreshadowing there of uh, Martha Harnaker. <laughs> we talk about that a little bit later. Um, so that is certainly a key moment there uh, in the 70s. And then in the late 70s, as I alluded to before, the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. And one of the things that Dussel comments on is the maybe, I don't want to call it an assent, but the participation maybe of priests in the government itself. I think that that, you know, raises questions for people. What is a, a priest doing as a, a minister in the government? So what what kind of happened there in Nicaragua with priests serving as ministers in the government? And what what do you think about that? Do you think that it's something that's a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a man thing uh, from your own perspective? <laughs> yeah, the Sandinistas are uh, the first example of a, a successful, thoroughly intertwined Christian and Marxist movement. And again, it stands out for that reason. Uh, in Chile, as we just talked about, there's this kind of coming together um, cooperation, the Sandinistas are a real melding, you know, a, uh, it's not the case that every Sandinista is a Christian or every Christian Sandinista is a Marxist, but it is the case that there's this kind of unity in a way that there has, had never been. Um, you know, Marxists welcomed Christians, Christians welcomed Marxists, and as you say, it was so, the connection was so strong that four priests were included in the Sandinista government. One, one Jesuit, which I should mention on this podcast in particular, mm. Fernando Cardinal, uh, and his brother Ernesto Cardinal, uh, a hero of mine. So the uh, they were appointed to different sort of parts of the government, some more and less authoritative, one might say. But Ernesto Cardinal was the minister of culture, and Fernando was the minister of of education. So I mean, quite formative posts to have in a revolutionary government, to say the least. This was, as you might expect, a sign of controversy in their own time, um, for a number of reasons. I mean, it was controversial because priests being in government itself was made controversial by some decisions in the Vatican prior to this. This was not the inciting moment to be said, but prior to this, uh, Pope John Paul II had said he did not want uh, clergy in government. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of flouting of that advice in this moment by these four priests. Um, and it was also controversial because uh, should a should a priest be wearing a revolutionary beret and and hanging around with armed revolutionaries? Right, there's this kind of a symbolic association with uh, with all these things that make certain people nervous, uh, understandably. So uh, anyway, um, lots to be said about those four men who are all. I think uh, people should should spend the time learning about them. They all have very storied lives, very interesting lives. You know, like you, like I said, said a moment ago, Pope John Paul II thought this was not a, a good development, nevertheless. And these four men suffered very greatly because of that decision uh, or because of that opinion on the part of the Pope. They publicly clashed. They had strong disagreements, to say the least. And in the end, these four priests were basically given the ultimatum to choose their priesthood or their political posts, and all four of them stayed in their political roles, although those stories developed quite significantly um, going forward. For my part, 
you know, I, I think it's actually quite amazing that these priests chose to serve the people in this way. I don't think they were being used by the Sandinistas. Sometimes people say that. I mean, they were very integral to the struggle prior to the, the revolutionary government. They were part of the movement themselves. And they enjoyed quite a lot of popular support and success in their roles. I mean, they were good at their jobs, right? They were good public servants in spite of, you know, just beyond just being priests. Um, in the past, too, it, it was not unusual that that clergy would be in politics. It's kind of hard for us to imagine now because that has that tradition has waned. But including it here in Canada and in the United States, there have been clergy in office. Personally, this is my own opinion, so I'm, certain, I'm not saying this is what the church says or not. But personally, I, I would love to, to vote for a good socialist priest here in Ontario. You know, that would be certainly a, a fantastic development as far as I'm concerned. But uh, times have, have changed, and uh, I don't uh, see that on the horizon, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think I agree with you on that. So, yeah, and kind of the amazing thing, too, is from my own perspective, just the success of the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry of Education at that time in that, of course, Cuba implemented an amazing model of promoting literacy. And then Nicaragua, I think, learned from that experience and then you know promoted its own uh, program of literacy and literacy being a means by which people would be able to move from being objects to subjects in society and agents of their own future uh, and creating a future for themselves and for their neighbors. And so kind of, yeah, crazy to look back on that time and think of part of this was was Fernando and Ernesto uh, learning from uh, socialist movements of the past and applying those insights to their own local situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, lots of interesting things there. Ernesto, I should mention, has a lovely book called In Cuba, by the way, which is uh, it's translated into English and it's a, a travelogue of his time in Cuba prior to the Sandinista Revolution, where you can kind of get his own thoughts, um, you know, working all this out. And you see much of that later on at when, as he's the Minister of Culture, continuing to sort that out. That sounds awesome. I uh, have no idea that that existed, and I would be very happy to uh, look into that and explore that at some point. So then moving on to the influences, this is kind of maybe one of the, the diciest and confusing sections maybe for someone who is just picking up the text because basically <laughs> kind of like a, a fan, you see the, uh, the fan kind of just expanding and you see all of these different variants of Marxism, because we know, I mean, there's Karl Marx, and then there's interpreters of Karl Marx that come after Karl Marx, and there's uh, just so many different trends and, and ways in which Marxism has developed in history. And so, uh, but one of the things that stands out in the text is that Dussel is making this distinction between the early younger Marx and the late older Marx, and saying that liberation theology tends to draw from the early Marx. And so maybe for those who might not be so familiar with uh, with Karl Marx and, and his thoughts and his life, who are these two Marx and why uh, might the liberation theologians, uh, according to Dussel, be preferring the early Marx? Yeah, I like that way you put it, by the way. The fan is exactly what it's like to read Dussel all the time, I think, uh, for better <laughs> and for worse. He's just a, a master of, of synthesizing lots of people at once in a way that can also give you a little bit of a, a head rush, maybe, like you're standing up too fast and all this information. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, in, in Marxist scholarship, there's a view made popular by a French communist, uh, Louis Althusser, 
that suggests that there is this profound break in Marxist thought in 1845 in particular um, with a book that he wrote with Friedrich Engels called The German Ideology. The short of the idea here on Althusser's part is that the young Marx is very humanist. You know, he's a, uh, a person very interested in, in freedom and in the kind of subjective things that are being done to us by capitalism and trying to take stock of that. And, you know, if you read the early Marx, his arguments are, are very much kind of like, how is capitalism shaping the way we behave and interact with one another? And is that the kind of people we'd like to be? And he says, of course, no. So there's a, an argument he makes on those kinds of grounds. He was a journalist as a radical young student himself. His analyses of capitalism have to do with what, what things like money might be doing to our, our perception, things like that. The big thing in early Marx is a concept called alienation, which is a, a specialized term for the way that capitalism makes us feel like we're not living a, a unified or fulfilling life. It's the kind of thing that you, you see in pop culture critiques of, you know, the suits working dead end jobs or uh, maybe even in a TV show like The Office where people are just kind of sitting around, you know, trying to get through their, their nine to five till they can go home. Right. It's this kind of uh, you have to deal with this awful boss and all these kinds of strange alienated feelings, right? You don't feel like you're you're leading the life that you want to be leading in, in a free sense. So that's the early Marx is really thinking through the kind of psychological effects, one might say. Lots of other stuff going on, but that's the, the exciting thing for lots of people. The late Marx, by contrast, is more concerned with a, a real revolution in how we think about economics and politics, articulating the, the nitty gritty of how capitalism actually works you know, you, you hear about what commodities are, what money is, what the stock market is doing, different forms of capital, all these specialized terms. So to put it simply, you could say the early Marx on this view is is more poetic. The late Marx is more of a, a social scientist. So again, this is Althusser's view. It's it's a There's a debate around this, but lots of people uh, use that as a way to interpret. Uh, liberation theologians draw from that early Marx because they see him as a fellow traveler talking about these spiritual degradations of capitalism. Um, a German Marxist, Ernst Bloch, uh, talked about what he called warm currents of Marxism and cold currents of Marxism. Liberation theology is certainly one of those warm currents. It wants a, a full picture. And I think that you know they were liberation theologians are quite interested in what capitalism does to us. Uh, I should add that Dussel himself read a, a fantastic book about the early Marx, um, but he also read a great book about the Grundrisse, which is a later Marxist text, uh, picking up these themes of alienation. So for Dussel, he has a very unified vision of Marx. But anyway, liberation theologians are sort of drawn to that spiritual radical side of Marx. Yes. And so maybe a question to put you on the spot a little bit here uh, would be, do you think that that was a, a good thing? Do you think that it's a mistake, you know, if we were to um, to see liberation theology as something that is active today and uh, and living, as it very much so is, I think, yeah, do we do we accept that distinction between the two Marxes and say, okay, we, we want to draw more from the <laughs> the former than the 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 latter, or uh, were the liberation theologians kind of uh, early on? These, these first phases of the movement, do you think that uh, they were right on with, uh, with accepting the early Marx and being more skeptical or not using as much the, the later Marx? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, in some, you know, Marxist scholarship has uh, evolved quite a lot since this time. You know, the 60s and 70s when this literature is happening, that, that Althusserian idea of a radical break is kind of the, the hot topic in Marxism. 
And I think a lot of Marxists have not moved past that view, but have maybe softened it or tried to find more continuities across Marx's life and development than perhaps Althusser had allowed for. Uh, I think there's benefits to both. Um, personally, I, I find it more interesting to ask the question, what does an interpretation of Marx do for us rather than does this interpretation get Marx 100% correct? Because uh, that's a very hard thing, at least in my own experience, to do. Mm. So, you know, I think um, the good thing about what Althusser says is that in a weird way, you can kind of bracket off the late Marx as the scientific stuff, and you can use that stuff as a scientific method, which is what lots of liberation theologians do. So they see Marx as someone illuminating the, the, the way that capitalism operates, and they borrow that in the same way that, you know, maybe Thomas Aquinas would have borrowed something from Aristotle, right, to say that this is a powerful way of articulating the world around us, and we don't want to leave that on the table. We want to absorb that and understand it. Um, the, and then the, the early Marx gives you that kind of uh, poetic charge that you need so that it doesn't sound boring. You know, uh, if you try to pick up Marx's book Capital and get through the first chapter, I mean, you, you need a lot of stamina to, to not get bored. Unless you're like very interested in economics and that gets you going, uh, you're going to get bored very quickly. So the early Marx at least gives, I think, liberation theologians the radical punch that they need to, to bring this stuff into the streets. So for me, it's kind of like, if you want to build a movement, the early Marx is probably a more exciting place to go. But if you want to understand capitalism in a really deep and articulated, sophisticated way, then the late Marx is actually a place to go. So liberation theology in a weird way actually does a great job of pulling both sides of Marx together in its own way, in a way that I think is still very relevant and very compelling. Yeah, absolutely. I think of kind of when we're thinking about capital in relation to liberation theology, I consider Gustavo Gutierrez, who speaks about prophecy in terms of three moments, denouncing, announcing, and then taking steps to move from what we are denouncing to what we are announcing. And it seems like a text like Capital really helps us with that first stage of being being prophets uh, and acting as prophets, because to get a sense of what is it exactly that's going on in capitalism that we're that we're denouncing, <laughs> and uh, and how does capital function as a tool for us to be able to understand how is capitalism working and why is it not working for humanity? And so I think yeah, great value in both. I like the image of the fire of the the early, and then there's the more scientific, take some coffee or your five-hour energy or whatever people are doing today to make your way through that. And you'll probably not only have to take your five-hour energy, it's probably going to be like several months-long energy <laughs> drink that you might need for that. But so, okay, that so I think that's very helpful just to think about, okay, who are who is Marx and how are liberation theologians drawing from Marx in the different stages according to uh, Althusser? Regarding uh, Althusser, and I feel like also whenever I pronounce something that's in French, I'm just so influenced by my Spanish. You know, I want to <laughs> say it in the in the Spanish way. And so uh, so you will get a little bit of that. But so it seems like there's this line uh, of all of the threads or maybe different folds in the fan of Marxism that is being pulled from by liberation theology. It seems like there's a special place that's given to Althusser and to uh, to Harnaker. And as far as I understand, uh, we can see 
this thread developing uh, with these two individuals and what might liberation theologians find attractive about that thread, the Althusser, Harnaker line of Marxism that they want to pull from that maybe as opposed to other lines of Marxist thought? Yeah, um, the history of Marxism in Latin America is very intriguing. for a lot of reasons. <laughs> the the Soviet Union, of course, has a particular interpretation of Marxism, and that art interpretation tended to be quite influential in a place like Cuba, which was the, the sort of beacon of successful revolution for many people in Latin America and many liberation theologians in particular. Um, at the same time, Althusser, who was himself part of, as I mentioned, the French Communist Party, um, he was influenced by that uh, Soviet history, but he was also a very creative and inventive thinker himself coming up with new vocabularies to articulate life in a capitalist society and what we might want instead. And that was very exciting for a lot of people learning about Marx because it did give you this this new way of investigating the world around you. The way that his thought gets to Latin America is through especially Marta Harnaker, who you mentioned. Um, I should explain maybe a bit about who she is. She she was the leader of a, a youth movement in Chile when Allende was coming to power, a Catholic uh, labor youth movement and, or student movement. And she was a, a really you know, powerful activist and an incredible Catholic activist. And there are some wonderful pictures even you can find online of a, a young Marta Honecker sitting with Allende, you know, and the two of them are, are, are chatting it up. So it's, it's a fascinating moment in history. Um, she eventually, though, went to Cuba after the, the coup. She had to flee. And she ended up studying with Althusser in in Paris. And when she returned to Latin America, she brought the lessons that she learned from Althusser. Uh, she wrote a popular textbook about the uh, about Marxism that is still used in some high school curriculum, even in Latin America. Um, and that interpretation of Marx again descends from Althusser. So there's this way that. By way of Harnaker, Althusser ends up being kind of like the Marxism that's in the air in lots of places in Latin America, just by virtue of that very powerful um, delivery <laughs> method and interpretation of Harnaker. She she turned out to be a, an incredibly inventive thinker herself. She she just passed away very recently, but um, yeah, she she also her thought developed uh, quite a lot later on down the line. So she moved past some of her Althusserian uh, youthful tendencies, I should say. But nevertheless, but her her being a, a Catholic activist as a young person, having this association with Allende, and then you know returning with this this uh, powerful explanatory Marxism from Althusser, that really caught on, I think, for a lot of liberation theologians as a way of understanding Marxism. And and as I mentioned, Althusser gives you that way of. Uh, saying that Marxism is a powerful social science, which lots of liberation theologians want to do, and it also allows them to kind of bump up against Althusser to say, yes, it's a science, but we also like the early Marx, which Althusser did not. So he's a a productive person to agree and disagree with for liberation theologians. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So as far as, you know, the aspects of Marx that uh, the Catholic Church's magisterium has rejected. I think the two things that really come to mind would be the atheism and the uh, dialectical materialism. At the same time, I recognize that uh, there are different interpretations of Marx, you know, that see the role of atheism and dialectical materialism in different ways, you know, operating in Marx. And so 
maybe I think it would be helpful, Dean, if you could share a little bit about what what is what does atheism look like in in Marx, or why did why did he think that that was an important piece of of the the puzzle of uh, moving forward? And then, kind of, what about maybe also it would be helpful just in terms of defining our terms? What is you know when Marx is speaking of materialism and uh, Marx's scholars are speaking of materialism, what do they mean by that? So yeah, a little bit about uh-huh. the atheism and the materialism. You know, well, I mentioned earlier, Marx is a, an Enlightenment kind of thinker. He is a person of science of his time. He really wanted to be uh, on the cutting edge of science. He did grow up in a Christian home. His dad, he's of a Jewish background, but his dad had converted um, in basically in order to uh, secure better employment. I mean, they were not a particularly pious Christian family growing up. And at some point, Marx just decided, ah, this isn't for me. You know, I, I don't find it convincing the Christian story. He had engaged with uh, a philosopher named Hegel, who is not worth getting into the weeds with, but was a uh, an intriguing kind of, of philosopher. And Marx sort of saw Hegel also as maybe a, a way out of Marx's interpretation of Hegel was a way out of theism in a lot of respects. So Marx is certainly an atheist. Uh, he, he looked for scientific explanations rather than supernatural ones for the world. And he was, like I said, not compelled by the Christian story. But as an atheist, he's not as militant as many people think or as the history of Marxism even might lead you to believe. You know, uh, again, I should be clear, Marx didn't think people should be religious, right? He, he makes that quite plain. But he, he also uh, didn't think that atheism should be a barrier to getting the working class organized. And he also had a, a really sympathetic soft spot for people like Jesus. Uh, there's a beautiful little anecdote told by his daughter, uh, Eleanor Marx, where uh, Marx tells her about the, the carpenter the rich man killed and said that Christianity taught us to love the child. Um, you know, he has this, uh, he, he's quite a, a gifted, sympathetic character, I think, uh, in a way that we sometimes don't understand. You know, he could be very, very caustic and grouchy with others on the left, but he has this soft spot and sympathy for revolutionary flare-ups. So his atheism is there. But uh, and he doesn't want people to be religious, but it's because he he wants people to, you know, come face to face with the material world around them. So, like I said, as believers, we may want to say more than Marx, um, but he's actually not quite unique or not very novel in that respect. There's lots of other atheists like him. Um, The thing that is unique is the political uh, sort of orientation of materialism, as you mentioned. So when we hear the word materialism, we sometimes think like consumerism or people who are too attached to buying things. Uh, For Marx, materialism is a a more specialized term. It means if you can, you know, if you have a question about the world, you should ask a question about that world in a scientific material way rather than finding a a theological answer for it. And for Marx, uh, he has a particular kind of materialism, a dialectical materialism which is to say uh, nature and the world around us is a process. Everything is interrelated. Um, There's nothing that sort of exists just by itself that you could go look at and say that's the truth. You have to understand everything in a kind of web of of relationships. And it's that material web of relationships, that's the kind of thing that Marx brings in his analysis to capitalism. Um, And that too does undergird some of his atheism, right? That religion can get in the way of us looking at those material relationships because we might hide behind a theological idea that prevents us. You know, we might say, for instance, that 
if you're poor, it's because God wanted you to be poor. Marx would say that's exactly what's wrong with the way that lots of people practice their religion. In fact, there are material reasons that people are poor. And liberation theologians found that quite useful and went on to say, in fact, God wants you to engage the poor in that way in particular. So that atheism is very complex in Marx, but he's not quite as uh, um, militantly atheist as his even his followers might have you believe. Yeah, and and we're, with regards to that, one of the things that comes to mind is just throughout Marx's texts, there is such a creative imagination that engages with spiritual terms or mythological terms. You know, he's speaking sometimes about werewolves and demons mm-hmm. and ghosts. <laughs> And will draw sometimes from Christian imagery and from uh, Christian literature. And so you see that he is in a, a creative, certainly using for his own ends, uh, but he's in a creative relationship with Christian imagery and Christian philosophy. And uh, sometimes it's kind of funny that for me. <laughs> it's that moment of lightheartedness when you're reading a text like uh, Capital and it is very technical at times and historical. And you can lose yourself in that and you may want to kind of yawn a little bit. But then you read these very colorful passages where he's speaking uh, and kind of drawing from popular and Christian uh, religious symbols. And I perk up in that moment and pay attention in a special way. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Dussel himself wrote a a great book, although it's been untranslated, um, on uh, Marx and the theological themes within Marx. So Maybe someday someone will get around to putting that into English. I've only been able to read, you know, what my remedial Spanish will allow. But uh, anyway, tracing exactly that, right, these poetic kind of drawing on the theological uh, vocabulary to articulate what's going on. I mean, he can't help himself from being a, a poet, Karl Marx. So mm. uh, we owe it to him to see him as a, a very colorful character. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I would love, oh man, I need to get my hands on that text as well, and uh, maybe it would be a fun uh, future project to work on that uh, translation there. Then moving into the section, the final section on the New Horizons, there's there's some talk about the conflict at the beginning, maybe more of a, a harmonizing, and then a use relationship. Maybe we could say that liberation theology develops over time with Marxism, not being bound by you know marxism and all of its uh and all of its ideas but kind of pulling from the social analysis and from the revolutionary fire at at the base of marxism in the early period but if we were to look at kind of the present moment and we've spoken about examples in recent history from latin america but maybe kind of uh, taking into account things that might be happening around the world where do you see uh, christianity and marxism uh, in dialogue with each other in the world today? Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's a real uh, resurgence of Christian Marxist dialogue these days. Um, some in the academy, some in popular writing. You know, you mentioned I, I've been able to write this piece at America even, for instance, right? So there's a, a space being made um, for that dialogue to kind of return, I think, with lots of changes around the world, lots of openness to socialism, in places like the U.S. that perhaps previously that was a a taboo topic that's being lifted. So there's lots of openness there. Um, In terms, though, of real on the feet, you know, feet on the ground kind of stuff, which is, I think, the most promising stuff. The global south is, it's not a perfect term, but the global south is a way of uh, talking about uh, sort of peripheral countries in the capitalist economic chain. 
um, that is still way ahead of the rest of us in the so-called global north on this kind of thing, Christian Marxist dialogue. Uh, across Latin America, left-wing governments and experiments in socialism have been happening for the last couple of decades in ways that when Dussel was writing this essay, he, he perhaps wouldn't have anticipated. Um, you know, the, this collection that you've been going through in Liberation Theology is written also in the shadow of the collapse of the Soviet Union, so a, a very uh, tough and uncertain time for socialism around the world. Um, in the last couple of decades, there's been this real uh, upsurge of popular movements, um, popular governments, etc., cetera, uh, reimagining socialism in the 21st century, as Hugo Chavez put it. Um, so there's a lot of Christian Marxist collaboration in a place like Venezuela and Chavez's Bolivarian Revolution. Um, there's still ongoing uh, and fraught, but but encouraging conversations happening in places like Nicaragua, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, Colombia. You know, uh, what I hear from people who work in ecumenical movements around the world is that this dialogue between Christians and Marxists is still alive and well everywhere that there's a struggle against the worst abuses of capitalism. And I think that speaks to what we were both saying at the top of this uh, episode, right? That if you have a, a heart for justice, whether you're a Christian or a Marxist, you're going to end up rubbing elbows with one or the other in, in, in that struggle, right? And so where the, where people are making real gains and, uh, making that struggle happen that dialogue is occurring. So I think those contexts of struggle are where the most interesting collaborations happen. Uh, where I find hope, I guess, is is in those places where people are trying to find new participatory democratic practices, where theologians are trying to hear what the people are saying rather than trying to make them listen to, to theology as a, an a priori discourse or something. And I think every time that happens, that's a miracle, you know. Um, so that is happening in Latin America. It's also the dialogue is happening in, in unpredictable ways, I think, in places like China and Vietnam and Cuba, um, where Christians and communists are sort of compelled to talk with one another and, and to argue and, and collaborate all at the same time, both to maintain a social peace and to press each other to an even more just society. So. You know, it's happening where people are struggling. It's happening where socialism has has already been kind of worked on for a few decades. So uh, there's lots and lots of places on the ground where it's really making lots of headway. Yes, and and uh, Dean, while while we still have you on the line here, two things that come to mind here by way of conclusions. The first one is just turning us back to something you mentioned before that I wanted to explore, which is you were talking about Marta Harnaker and. The situation with, in Latin America, a certain accessibility in the school system to Marx. And what comes to mind for me is I remember in, in my first time in Guatemala, I went to the Universidad de San Carlos in Guatemala City. And I recall just going, uh, walking around the campus and numerous posts around campus, there would be Marxist booksellers just laying out various Marxist texts, maybe on a, a rug on the ground. And I remember that was precisely the first time that I acquired a the Communist Manifesto, was uh, a little copy that was being sold, a paper copy. And, and at that time, I was riding a lot on the bus. And so I would be journeying through the streets of Guatemala City, uh, reading this book. And, and it just seemed like, at least in my own limited experience, <laughs> In, in the United States, and I think there definitely are, and I can think of places in the United States where this is more normal, 
But for a lot of people in the United States, it wouldn't be so normal to see an integration of Marxism and education. So maybe I would I would love to hear your perspective on that. What what is going on in in Canada or maybe in your own experience in the United States where where it just seems from in some contexts that 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 integration of Marxism in the curriculum and in academic life is just not there. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I can only speak speculatively, of course, about, well, about every school system, I guess, because I only went through the one in the United States. Um, but judging from history and, and that sort of thing, maybe I could venture hazard some some guesses. You know, I think in Latin America, the history with Marxism is something that you kind of can't, you can't just um, shoo it away. Uh, you might not like it. You know, lots of people in Latin America, of course, do not like it. There's lots of history of right-wing governments that do come to power and hold on to power. So uh, it's not like that whole um, world is uh, friendly to Marx by any stretch. But I think that because there is such a, uh, a history of struggle in Latin America, um, and Marxists have been in the thick of that struggle, trying to help people get out from under the thumb of oppressive governments in their own local contexts, but also oppressive governments in foreign contexts, especially the United States, right, having uh, uh, its fingers in other economic situations that it should not. Marxists are the ones who are really carefully trying to parse that out in a theoretical way and trying to show up um, in an organized way on the ground. So there's this living memory of Marxism as something you kind of can't dispense with understanding if you live in, in that part of the world. Uh, I think in places like the United States and Canada, um, there was a time that that was quite true in these countries too. We've lost the historical memory of that for a, a lot of reasons. But, you know, in the Great Depression, for instance, in the, in the 30s and into the 40s, um, a country like the United States had, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who passed through the Communist Party USA, for instance, and people who organized in uh, Alabama sharecropping farms, right, who were both Christians and communists in many respects. Um, this is a, a sort of history that we, we don't tell. And I think that is for a lot of reasons. The Cold War is one, of course, right? There's an ideological reason that you wouldn't want to teach Marxism in schools when you're your most formidable ideological opponent is is a Marxist, you know, set of republics like in the Soviet Union. That would be one. Another reason is that both Canada and the United States um, actively persecuted Marxist organizers for many decades, and in some cases killed them. Right? Um, you know, there's a film about to be released on Netflix about Fred Hampton, one of the most legendary Black Panther organizers in Chicago, who was killed by the FBI. So, you know, in a country like that, one of the most powerful countries in the world, uh, reading Marxism in a, a classroom can be a, a real liability, uh, for, to put it simply. So I think, you know, the Marx himself said that the ruling ideas of our time are reflections of the economic organization of our time. And in a place like the U.S. or Canada, that economic organization is capitalism. And so the ideas that reproduce capitalism are the ones that you're going to find trickling into school curriculum. In places like Latin America, capitalism might still be, uh, you know, running things in a, a large part. But in terms of civil society, it's sort of not sewn up as neatly as in a consumerist um, society like the U.S. or Canada. That's my off-the-cuff, unprepared uh, speculation on that topic. Yes. No, I'm thinking of 
when I was at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, I did take an economics class, as as many uh, do, <laughs> and part as part of a liberal arts curriculum. And of course, the one thing I remembered is that it was really only presenting economics from one perspective. And I would imagine that this is the capitalist perspective, and that this is the same thing that's happening in many universities throughout the United States. There are certainly pockets where Marxism is studied and incorporated into the classroom and economics curricula, but to a large degree, not so much. And I think a lot of uh, what you're saying, and maybe we could speak about funding and other things with that, but um, there's a lot going on there. But as a, a kind of final, maybe pitch in a way, I would say, Dean, can one be a Christian and a Marxist. Uh, I think that that's what some people are wondering. And so, what do you what do you think? Can you be Christian and Marxist? What uh, What is your answer, and what would your case be? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, uh, and I and I happen to be one. So, living proof, I suppose. Uh, you know, of course, people might say that I'm I'm deluding myself, or I'm not alive to the the contradictions that are at the bottom of these two things, and I'm you know I'm. I'm reconciling them in a way that they, in fact, cannot be reconciled. Um, I think, uh, you know, there are all kinds of difficult conversations that you have to have with yourself if you're a Christian Marxist, right? You have to wrestle with the real challenges that Marx puts to your faith, and, and you have to wrestle with them authentically and honestly, which means being perhaps perturbed by them sometimes or, or you know, genuinely allowing them to challenge what you think about God and the world and how you see all of these things. Uh, and on the other hand, you have to let what the tools that you've learned from Marxism be troubled by the kind of hope that Christianity has uh, for the kingdom of God, you know, a, a much wider horizon than communism imagines here on this earth. Uh, but for me, those are productive tensions. Those are uh, those are conversations that actually propel me forward Um rather than holding me back or making me feel like I live a kind of, you know, double personality life inside my mind or something. So I think uh, ideologically, it's quite possible to be a Christian Marxist. You do have to do some work and, and you should do that work, is, is my advice, that it, you, you get a lot out of doing that work. Um, more importantly, though, it goes back to what I said earlier about th there are so many precedents now for being a Christian and a Marxist. You know, you, you read the poetry of Ernesto Cardinal. And you, you have these beautiful hymns to what it means to be a Christian entering the suffering of the people in a profound way that leads you to Marxism as well. Um, and at the same time with Cardinal, you get somebody who enters into the, the world of Marxism in such a way that it deepens his Christian faith in these really tangible kinds of ways. And so for me, it's kind of like, of course you can be a Christian and a Marxist because lots and lots and lots of people are doing it every day. Uh, they're doing it right now. They've been doing it for as long as there have been Marxists, really. There have been Christian Marxists. And I think that's an important thing to, to always keep in mind. It's, it can be difficult, but the difficulty is, is part of the, uh, the, the blessing in a lot of respects. Yes. And St. Ignatius speaks of it's always good to kind of end on a note of consolation. And so uh, with that in mind, Dean, maybe it would be helpful to hear a story from you, maybe of a time or a moment or an insight that you had that led to a clicking of, of these two uh, schools, ways of thinking in your own life that, that led to something productive, something beneficial in, in your own life story. Sure. Yeah, that, that's a really good question and something that uh, 
I should probably reflect more on now that you've said it. I'm going to have to, that's what I'll take away from this interview myself is trying to think of some of these stories. You know, the, the way that I first started getting interested in Marx was uh, I come from a, a rural part of Michigan. Um, I thankfully did not grow up very poor, but many people in my family did. My my parents happened to uh, just be the, the few people in their own family who could kind of um, find a way to uh, get out of their economic situation. But being in this proximity to many people in my family who were, who were in, in many respects, still are really, really suffering. As a Christian, I always felt so um, disconnected from what people in my faith were saying about the poor and my actual experience of, you know, my, my close family members and relatives and what they were going through and what was happening to them. And I would read these passages in the Bible that felt they struck home to me so intensely, right, that uh, all these passages about justice for the poor and Mary's Magnificat, as we mentioned earlier, these stories that, that moved me, but the church just didn't seem to be there. And it was in a, a class where I started reading uh, the early Marx, the early manuscripts of Marx, where he was talking about alienation and these feelings that you have that capitalism compels you to have, that I finally felt like I saw myself reflected in somebody who was, you know, seeing me as a person, seeing me, even though he's writing, you know, in 1844, right? And I thought, there's something here. This is a way of me finally feeling like I understand why the world's the way that it is, why my, my loved ones are in the situations that they are, which is not their fault. And that kind of confirmation just felt to me like uh, I finally found a uh, an explanatory power, you know, and, and I couldn't get enough of that after that. So I think there's lots of stories I could tell about being in solidarity with other people and the kind of moments that you have of victory and all that kind of stuff. But it's just that simple kind of way of finally having somebody bring home, you know, this intuition that you feel very deeply. For me, that that is uh, the, the gift that always stays with me from Marx. Mm, I love that. And maybe is there something in your own work now, Dean, that you would like the people who are listening to know about? Maybe something that you're a project you're working on, uh, some writings that you've done recently that if people wanted to learn more about you and the great work that you're doing, where would they maybe turn to to get some more of this discussion we've been having? Sure. Sure, yeah. I would, of course, be remiss if I didn't mention America Magazine. It is not a Marxist journal, although some people like to pretend that it is. Uh, it's not. But they, it, it, you know, it's a wonderful Jesuit ministry that I, I have to, I'm compelled to mention it, but I'm also uh, grateful to be able to mention it on, on a Jesuits podcast. Um, in terms of the Marxism conversation, I do have this podcast, The Magnificast, with, that I co-host with a friend, Matt Bernico, and that, David, you've graciously agreed to be on soon, so I encourage people to listen to that. We've got lots of episodes exploring these relationships between Christianity and the left with lots of people, um, academics, activists, uh, organizers, you know, you name it, they've been on the show at some point, I guess. Um, the last project I would mention is uh, a little magazine that's called G's Magazine, it comes out quarterly. Most of the editors now are in a Catholic worker house in Detroit. Um, it is a really creative project. It's a print magazine primarily. Um, I serve as a, a section editor there where I write stories about civil disobedience and some other things. And it's it's one of the most interesting publications by Christians who have a, a kind of left-wing perspective that I think is is out there. And more people should know about it. It's, it's ad-free they make no money off of selling advertising. It's all donor-based, and it really is a, a labor of love. So G's Magazine, G-E, 
G-E-E-Z. <laughs> it's a, a lovely thing that you should subscribe to. It doesn't cost that much money and you'll get four beautiful issues a year. Well, uh, geez, all, all that sounds lovely. <laughs> and uh, so thank you for that. And thank you so much, Dean, for helping us understand this difficult topic of uh, liberation theology and Marxism and uh, showing us the way here. So thank you so much for, for being on the episode. Yeah, and thanks for your work here, David. I'm so grateful that liberation theology is alive and well and that you're out here making sure that people don't forget it. So thank you for your work. There we go. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. A big thanks to Dean for being the first guest on the show, and next time we will continue with this new pattern of guests. We'll have Dr. Marcus Mesher, a professor of theology at Xavier, with us to discuss the next chapter on the relationship between liberation theology and Catholic social teaching. But for now, as in previous weeks, let us close with a prayer, this time in the spirit of this conversation on liberation theology and Marxism, we will take a prayer poem that one of, was one of the favorites of Che Guevara, written by uh, Leon Felipe, uh, that I have translated part of it into English. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ, I love you, not because you fell from a star, but because you showed me that humanity has blood and that humanity is God, a poor God, crucified like you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.